Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. I think that from a societal standpoint, there is not the same level of respect for aging women as there is for aging men. I guess if everyone knew this, like if everyone knew that grandmothers and aging women quite possibly are the biggest reason or one of the biggest reasons why we're here, would that change things? And there are plenty of societies that do hold older women in very high regard, and they exist with a lot of respect given to them. But in Western society, not so much. Hey everyone, this is Meredith, and you're listening to the Afternoon Snack Podcast. Today's episode is a very interesting one. We are going to talk about postmenopausal women, but not in the way that you might think. We're going to talk about a very interesting theory and the body of work of one Kristen Hawks, who is an anthropologist out of the University of Utah and the most prominent contributor to the grandmother hypothesis, which essentially proposes that not only did post-reproductive females have a role in society, but they may have been the key element in our longevity and ability not only just to survive, but thrive as a species. And this information is just mind-blowing if you've never heard about it. And, you know, not only do we have lots of anthropological data to look at, but we have people still living in hunter-gatherer communities, and we can see this sort of theory, this hypothesis at work in real time today. So we're going to get into it. It's really, really cool information and hopefully starts some empowering and insightful conversations among you all as it has for us. Here we go. Welcome back to my show. Are you talking to me or the listener? You. Oh. <laughs> this is your show? Yeah. Okay. It was my idea originally. All right. I was all for it and you were super hesitant. Yeah. I don't remember it that way, but I guess I'll give this one to you. There are things in this job where I'm like, what if I just didn't do that? Like what? Like videos. Oh. You know? Yeah. Like, can we just hire out that job? You mean like actually being a personality on the... Yeah. Mm. Why do you struggle with that? That's a great question. Like what part of it don't you like, I guess? Well, for our listeners out there who don't understand our creative process, there are times where like one of us will have a good idea and they've drafted a script or we've worked together on a script. And... More often than not, you've drafted a script for me based on like a non-fully formed idea by both of us, let's say. I'd say that's, yeah, that's usually your... Yeah, content. like yeah. we... So you're like, okay, here's the script. And then I have to like use that script and deliver it into the camera in a natural way. And that is hard. It's hard when it's like, I don't know how actors do it. When I've come up with the script, it's way easier which makes sense. But it's like someone else's words. 
And now you have to say them and memorize them. Mm -hmm. I find a lot of the way that you like structure your sentences are different than the way I would. So there's that as well. Yeah. I read a sentence and I'm like, I would never write it like that. And it's not to say it's wrong. It's just different. Yeah. So my brain, it like can't remember it. And then to have to like speak into the camera, it adds Mm -hmm. pressure. Yeah. And then you're there and I'm like, I don't want to let Meredith down. But because I don't want to let you down, I always do. You don't let me down. I'm never let down. You're just like, what is wrong with her? Why has she forgotten English? When I shoot my videos, and this is partially because I'm the person who does the camera work. Like, I know you're also just way better. But also, like, I practice. And yeah, I've always. And I would say public speaking is similar to speaking in front of a camera. Yeah, true. And when I do mine, it's just usually me and the camera, and I can kind of like play with it. I don't really use scripts. I just kind of wing it. And that works for me. But also like in my head, it's just like constantly like ideas and like how I want to say things and like what I want to do with my face. And I think it's just different when that's not where you spend your time, free time mentally, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I was saying this morning after a struggle, getting a video out that if I had to apply for that job, I would never have gotten it. The video work? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I but find we it get by. Strengths and weaknesses. Yes. But I don't know how we got on that topic. I guess I just brought it up, even though it wasn't planned. Yeah. I liked it. I don't know. We're recording. We're doing content. It's... Do you like podcasting? I like it. I do. Mm-hmm. I like it because it's like, ooh, I want to talk about that. But yeah. you don't have to be as stringent with language. You don't have to be as concise. Yeah. When you want to discuss a topic whereas with posts it's like you got to be concise you got to say the right thing like it's there people can comment on it people pick it apart yeah i'm sure people do that with podcasts but they can't comment yeah it's my favorite thing about podcasts it's like oh you have an opinion about it well i guess you'll just have to keep that to yourself whereas instagram people just get to word vomit all over the place yeah such a bad habit i think we should all practice just like not having opinions on everything you know and part of it is we're just exposed to so much but This concept of like, you can see something and not have an opinion on it, even though it's really hard these days to not have an opinion. But there's value in opinion. 100%. But it's also like, it takes energy and emotion to have an opinion, to form an opinion. I think it's more the nittiness that people have with certain language. But that's the thing. You can't qualify everything. I know. Like, if you wanted us to qualify everything we put on the internet, like our videos would be like 10 minutes. I would just quit. I just would stop doing it. It's just so impossible, especially when you can tell that there are people like us who are doing our best to be thoughtful with language and pay attention to the way things come across. And then there are also people who do the exact opposite. Like they don't give a shit. They just say what they say. They don't care if it rubs people the wrong way. They don't care if it's tone deaf. They don't care if it whatever makes people feel some kind of way. They're just like, well, said it is what I think. Moving on. We don't do that. So it's like frustrating when we are the ones that get picked apart. Yeah. On that note, one thing before we get into the meat of the podcast, I wanted to bring up the binary language used by that app. Oh, this is the story I wanted to talk about. I was like, there was something in my head. In terms of thoughtfulness, this is worth bringing up. Yeah, okay. Please, take it away. Absolutely. So we have a fitness program. That's old news. And as a part of, I guess, continued evolution and growth, like we just are exploring different options for user experience, logging workouts specifically, and 
how people engage with one another. And so we're looking into some third-party apps, which originally I, I didn't really want to do, but I think we could improve ease of use with the website. And if we can improve experience, then people will have a better time doing it and they'll stick around. And even though there's more of an overhead cost to it, may as well, right? What's money? What's money? You know, I reached out to one that I had poked around in. I started a trial and I was like, hey, this like this actually looks really good. It's easy to input workouts. They collect a lot of data. Like it seems really useful. And they also had a plugin that would be handy on our website. So set up a call with like, as you do with these apps and with these websites, set up a call for an introduction to talk about how you're going to use it, yada, yada, yada. And it's all going really well. We're going through how to you know set up workouts, how to break things out in different sections. Like, okay, cool. This is awesome. And earlier, about midway through the call, the person who was doing the demo showed me how to enter in like if you're prescribing weights. And it was like, you know, 135.95. And the thing that jumped out was the field said like male, female. And I made a mental note to come back to that because, you know, we don't do that. We don't prescribe weights that way. We don't gender. If we recommend weights, we use language like larger athlete, smaller athlete. Like we just stay away from the gendering. And so I got to the end of the call and I was like, I do have a question. And that question is about entering in weights and this kind of thing. Like when you brought that up, it said male, female, like we work with a really diverse clientele, many of which are non-gender identifying. And so I was wondering what the alternative to that is. And they were essentially like, oh, well, they said, that's a tricky one for us. Yeah, that's a tricky one for us. I was like, is it? That's a telling response. But their whole platform is built. You have to, when you sign up, when you register, you have to pick male, female. When he told me that, I was just like, oh, well, I guess we're done. He's like, because you know, that's where our whole system is built. And you pick one and then it helps with, you know, recommending weights and different things. And I was like, what if someone is non-binary? Again, he was just kind of like, um, I think what surprised me the most, and maybe this is naive of me to be surprised, but I'm like, there wasn't really any, like, that's something we're considering for the future. Yeah. It was more like, that's the way it is. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And that bothered me. Yeah. The whole thing, like up until that point, it was looking really positive, And I was just like, we can't use that. Like, there's absolutely no way that we could spin that and have it be okay with our values. It just and- doesn't align with what we've always done. Yeah. So that in an effort to be inclusive to everybody. Mm-hmm. It's not like we don't work with white cis men or everyone yeah. like who would fall into those categories. But yeah. we also work with a handful of people who like we don't want to make one person feel like uh right. I don't belong here. Where do like, I go? Like if you log on to our site and you know seeing or hearing us say things like you know larger athlete, smaller athlete, not using men's, women's, not using male, female, not seeing that designation anywhere. If that makes you feel unwelcome, by all means, Mm -hmm. there's the door. But we feel like through that omission- You can go ahead and leave with that client who canceled their membership before even trying to Because we were gay. We are gay, not were. Yeah. So that's just, it goes towards inclusivity. And it's like, it takes such small things to make people feel welcome and safe. And, you know, I get it. This is- I think awareness and consideration of all kinds of people is unfortunately a new thing. And there's a lot of pushback and there shouldn't be. But yeah, that is a hill that I will die on. I will go out of business before I gender our clients. I think it's, I mean, it's easy for us to do. We've done it from the beginning, but maybe it's harder for companies who haven't always done it that way and who've built their apps based on two categories. 
Well, and I will say, sucks, but it's like, it sucks to me that there wasn't like a, we are aware we're considering yeah. this. Like, I will say something that, yeah, I guess. So, I mean, there's a few out there that have done a good job. I don't want to throw that one under the bus, but Sugar Wad is one that we're looking at. And evidently, so I got in touch with Rocket Community Fitness, which is a gym out of Seattle and asked because they're very inclusive. And I was like, do I have something to say? And I guess Sugar Wad, like 10 years ago, had the same thing brought to them. And they had built their app, male, female, just like a lot of apps and companies doing CrossFit. And yeah, people are like, hey, this isn't going to work. Like there's a whole community here. And they walked that back. And they essentially like decoupled the gender. Like they have a non-binary option. It's not perfect, but it's better. Is there a non-binary option in the open? Not that I'm aware of, which Mm. should be... A surprise to no one. Yeah. But it's unfortunate. I think in competition and CrossFit's not the only one. Like cycling is really going through it. There's tons of sports. Surfing is dealing with diversity issues. Like I feel like there's, there's but there's dealing with that issue at an elite level where like people's careers are involved in money. And mm-hmm. that's a very difficult subject because it's so hard. Yeah. But at a recreational level, come on. Yeah. Have a category. I mean, like, we're gonna get into this a little bit later about kind of what we'll touch on it but this whole gendering thing and i don't know that our society is necessarily in a place to walk that all the way back but it didn't Maybe come from nowhere day. and it doesn't necessarily have to be that way so anyways yeah thanks for bringing that up that is the story i wanted to tell it's better than the one about me not eating enough which yeah and being like, why am I so tired? Why, why don't I want to work out? Why is my anxiety worse than it's been? <laughs> I do think a lot of people struggle more with their mental health issues when they're hungry. And that's it not It is to- difficult when someone is struggling with mental health and they're not exercising or eating enough. And I'm like, mm-hmm. this is a big one that will help. Yeah. But you also don't want to discount yeah. people's experience with actual mental health issues. You tread lightly yeah. there. Kind of like when someone's really stressed out. And, you know, they're not sleeping super well. And they're like, I just really got to get on top of this diarrhea. (laughs) And I'm like, well, I understand why you want to cut out gluten and dairy. But I am here to tell you that it is probably your stress in your sleep that is (laughs) causing you diarrhea. Yeah, so that's also a tough one. (laughs) Anyways, diarrhea is a tough one as is. You know what? Best excuse ever, though. If you ever want to get out of something or like... You're like, hey, why aren't you eating, you know, the pizza or why don't you drink? And you're like, oh, man, I, I had diarrhea last <laughs> night and I just I don't think I can take it. They will stop asking questions. Yeah. Like when someone's like, what do I do if my friends peer pressure me to drink tonight? And I'm like, tell them you have diarrhea. Straight up. Works every time. I use two excuses. And with people who know you, you use diarrhea. With people who don't know you, like let's say you're out at like a you corporate still dinner. use diarrhea. Well, you can use diarrhea. That one works. But you can also. Works better. You can also use gallbladder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're like, if you go but with, what if like, someone's like, I have a gallbladder issue too. What's your problem? And you're like, it's gone. <laughs> well, yeah. But if it is gone, or if you're having issues, you can't eat a lot of fat. Yeah. So if you need to feel okay about ordering salmon and like a salad with gallbladder on the side, yep. No, I got a, I got gallbladder issues. Yeah. My gallbladders are acting up. You know, people don't argue with gallbladders either. Like most people can't point to their gallbladder. But can there's you? that one person who can, and then they start quizzing you, and then you're in trouble. Yeah. Well, then, then you backtrack. Like, I don't like, know. I'm just, no, I mean, like, my, my doctor said something. Uh, yeah. I'll get you to, he'll, he'll reach out to you. There's gallbladder issues in my family. I don't have a gallbladder issue necessarily, but I don't want to get one. 
So I'm going to get the salad with dressing on the side, yeah. but I am going to get the croutons and I'm going to eat the hell out of those. Anyways. Yeah. So this topic that we're going to talk about today is kind of an interesting one. And I think it's, there's themes and I get like when you sort of work with a specific group of people and you start following people online, you're kind of exposed to things more, but more and more, I've just been seeing women, especially old, I don't want to say older because it's not old, women who are either going through the menopause transition or been through it or they're worried about it. There's a lot more talk in the space about menopause, but then also across sort of disciplines. And we talked about this on the Girls Just Want a Podcast with the Legends of Americana set, Kim Ritchie and Mary Chapin Carpenter, about how everyone, like all these women seem to have kind of the same experience, which is their experience with the progressive invisibility of being a post-reproductive female and how society just kind of brushes you aside. So. I thought that, and we've heard a few people talk about this theory, and we've touched on it before, this grandmother hypothesis. So we're going to talk about kind of some misconceptions with older women and how they've been treated in society and what actually, you know, their purpose might have been. So in our society, like women, and you, you see this the way that, you know, media portrays women, but women seem to be valued as long as they can reproduce. And I guess more specifically, as long as they can reproduce and look a certain way, but that's kind of a, that's a sidebar conversation. We'll just focus on women's ability to reproduce. And so it seems like, you know, as soon as your uterus stops functioning to make babies, you're kind of just brushed aside, like no longer important. Go over there, stand in the corner, never come out again. Goodbye. You're not valuable. And that's kind of how women are treated. Older women are treated. And also, do you think that's shifting um, at all with like more women? Like, even in the last, I don't know, when did women start voting? I mean, you know this 1920s when okay. women suffrage. And then, like, more women like going to med school and law school and like having more like established careers that like they continue and they do until they're 60s. I think that's two different questions. I think women can contribute to society. I think women can have success that, you know, is equivalent and sometimes surpasses men's. Are they valued and respected in the same way that men are throughout their lifetime? I don't think so. Not on average, not on the whole. Yeah. I will add something that I learned a long time ago in, I think, social psychology, if you don't mind. Have you ever looked at hair dye and you go in the men's section and a lot of it's like touch of gray yeah whereas like in the women's section there is no touch of gray mm -hmm. it's because grayness in men is seen as like a status symbol like mature wisdom wealthiness whereas with women gray means like old no women wants touch of gray no but instead they're dyeing their hair to get rid of the gray yeah why is that because of exactly what you said. Yeah. Which is like, if you can change your appearance to look younger because you're more valued or respected, then do that. Yeah. I mean, I think that sums up basically it on the cover of Paradise Boxes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to embrace gray, but that's me. You already are. You have salt and pepper. Do I? A little, no, it's not that much, but you do have 
they poke through. They're do I, that was do I an excitement? Because, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I'm sure I caused those. <laughs> but also, okay, let's focus on some language for a second. When estrogen levels decline, which is the marker of moving into post-reproductive life, that is defined by a term, and that term is menopause, which literally means like cessation of the menstrual cycle, menopause. Not related to minnows of the sea. No, not (laughs) M-I-N-N-O-W-S. All women, if they make it late in life, will have estrogen levels will decline and they'll go through that. The extent to which women experience symptoms of menopause can vary. It seems like about 80% of women experience some symptoms. Sleep disruption is the most common symptom. 75 to 80% of women experience some form of hot flushes. 75% approximately experience brain fog. And then there's a whole host of other symptoms that are experienced in lower percentage. And those are symptoms that are not indefinite. Like, you don't just deal with those forever. They seem to be transitional and I think on average affect women for about four years. And there's a very small percentage of women who experience all of those symptoms throughout menopause. So interesting then that that is what we call and how we define women who are aging. That is how we define aging women. The percent of men who experience erectile dysfunction over the age of 60, and this isn't necessarily like constant, this isn't necessarily like indefinite, but men who experience some instances of erectile dysfunction is around 50%. Over the age 60. Over age 70, it's closer to 75%. And a lot of doctors and experts think that that number may actually be higher. It's just underreported because of all kinds of societal pressure that men live with. Ego. Yeah. And I'll point out too, I can't remember the exact stats on how much money is spent researching this problem Mm -hmm. versus how much money is spent and time researching how to mitigate the symptoms of menopause. And yeah. that was discussed on the podcast we did with Beth Bacon. Yeah, it's a fraction. And especially for a condition that men don't tend to experience, you know, indefinitely. And if they do, it's only for, you know, maybe maybe a quarter of their life where women are living more than a third of their life after menopause. So, yeah, it's interesting then that men also experience sexual dysfunction related to aging. But as far as I'm aware, the term erectopause is not necessarily used. Or penopause? What are some other? I like penopause because it's close to menopause. Penopause? I'm in penopause. Okay. Everyone would know what that means. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So women are defined by their reproductive status. Men are not. And that's just kind of how women are looked at, right? And it's how they describe themselves for a lot of things. So, like, I get the inquiry emails come to my email and I respond to them. A lot of women who are in the stages of life of perimenopause or menopause. We can call it the menopause transition. Yeah. Will include that in any information of themselves. So if they provide information on themselves they will usually include that as like, I am in menopause Mm -hmm. or I am postmenopausal. I am this old. And then they'll go on and say what they are looking for. 
And I have never seen an inquiry by a male who has had a hormonal transition in mm-hmm. their life. Which they do. Include that in the description of themselves. Yeah. They will usually, not description of themselves, when they provide information on themselves, they'll usually say their age because mm-hmm. that can be important to a degree. Although a lot of the same nutrition concepts will apply to most people. Yeah. Regardless of age, at least in our coaching service. But yeah, it's rare that you get a male that's like, describes their hormonal status. It's just not a big part of but the information just, they include. And it's funny because like, I follow a guy who used to coach me in nutrition many years ago. And he posts a lot about hormone replacement therapy. Oh, yeah. For males specifically. That's kind of his niche. What's and I, didn't, I didn't actually, because I don't work with a lot of like, and I'm going to say older males, so like 60 plus, let's say. Yep. And I don't really have a ton of education on that. Yeah. But he's very like in it. And so he'll post and I read the post and I'm like, okay, this is a real thing, like a real problem that yeah. men experience. But it's very rare that any male will describe that to me in an intake form. And it's also very rare that it will even come up in a coaching relationship. Mm-hmm. And it does affect their life. I mean, like low testosterone levels have a huge impact on quality of life. Yeah. Whereas like with women, it's the number one thing that they're usually talking about in their coaching relationship. Yeah. And good on women. I think that there was a time where it wasn't talked about as much. So it's, you know, we've swung to a place where like it is at the forefront, it's being discussed, like women are open about it. So good on them. You know, men are not as open with their issues, at least as far as I can tell. But, you know, at the same time, have they been treated as poorly as women? No, they haven't. So it's not to say I don't feel bad for men who struggle with body image and aging related anxieties, but at the same, they don't experience the same type of societal oppression that women do. So some things that were believed about, and some people still believe this about menopause, is that it's a modern affliction, that it's the result of the fact that all humans, both genders, are living longer than our ancestors did. And plenty of people will point to data like, well, you know, the average age at birth before the year 1800 was 40 years old, less than 40 years old. And that's consistent. Like you can go back 1,000, 2,000 years, that number's consistent. Average age at birth, less than 40 years old. So it's easy to take that at surface level and say, well, if most women aren't living past 40, they're not going to make it into menopause. However, when you look at what that data is and where it's coming from, you have to remember that infant mortality was ridiculously high back then. So you have all of these really young people dying. You have infants, you have one-year-olds, two-years-old. You have kids that just aren't making it into childhood. And so that's skewing the data significantly. If you were to take that same data and say, okay, if you make it to age, I don't know, 10 or 15, what's the average age then? Well, it's significantly higher. In fact, anthropologists believe that more than a third of women made it into post-reproductive years. 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago. So there's been women living beyond reproductive years for ever. That's a myth that just doesn't hold up. I think that In our society and in many societies, reproduction and fertility are thought to be one and the same. And so 
that can be potentially why when women are no longer fertile, they're not seen as valuable to society. When if you think about humans, just like all animals, have a biological prerogative to reproduce. That's why we're here. And so can we be more curious about what that means and what goes into reproduction of the species, not necessarily fertility of individual units, individual society members. So I think that's something that needs to be decoupled. And then, you know, menstruation is misunderstood. So the females, you know, are cycles. So back in Hippocratic medicine, so the four humors, back when, you know, they thought that fluids had to be in balance for people to be healthy, you had, you know, bile, you have blood, you have black humor. And it was believed that women's periods were the result of women's inability to maintain balance in their own bodies. So blood obviously is like a life force. And so it was believed that women weren't able to use blood as efficiently as men. It was why they were weaker. And so every month they would lose blood. And it wasn't until they had the men's seed that they were able to maintain balance. Isn't that a disgusting concept? So women's bodies have been thought of as problematic for thousands of years, so much so that it was, you know, the way that women were viewed, they were viewed as, as weaker, as inherently sick. You know, the inability to maintain body temperature was another reason why it was thought that women bled once per month. So, of course, you get into menopause. You Meanwhile, stop- <laughs> it's like overlooked that women are actually the ones like making a baby. Yeah. Well, you get into menopause and you stop bleeding once per month and all of a sudden you start having these hot flushes. And of course, men are going to be like, see, can't maintain her temperature. She's not bleeding anymore. So now she's sweating. It's just like constant scrutiny, constant bullshit, thousands of years of bullshit. That's what women have been exposed to. I wonder if it's because men have always known that women are actually superior. So they've worked really hard to be like, we got to suppress pick, these women we here. Pick these smarter beings apart. They're too smart, too dangerous. <laughs> okay, let's talk about lifespan for a second. So it's not common for animals to live beyond reproductive years. Like if you look across species, there's basically only like two animals that do it, humans and killer whales, which is like also kind of awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so if you look at humans and genetics, our closest relatives are chimpanzees. That's as close as you get to a human. And ch- interestingly, chimpanzees are more closely related to humans than they are gorillas, which is kind of a, you know, interesting tidbit. Basically the same. Going to the zoo is like looking in a mirror. Uh, in some ways. But, you know, chimpanzees, and this was Jane Goodall made this observation when she was studying chimps, it was that they age really fast. Like they age faster and they don't live beyond their reproductive years. So much like dogs, cats, who can have litters up until the end of their life, the same thing goes for chimpanzees. So even though they're very closely related to us, there's this major difference in lifespan. And the other difference, I mean, they say the other, there's a lot of differences. They have longer periods between babies, so they don't have babies at such short intervals. And there's differences in weaning. So this is the work of something that Kristen Hawks talks about. So she's a 
anthropologist, social ecologist, and she's done a lot of work on understanding this post-reproductive life period for humans. And so she's obviously done a lot of research and modeling based on chimpanzees because of how closely they're related to us. But when you look at the way that chimps, when they have their babies, they're basically nursing. And then as soon as the baby is weaned, it's foraging its own food. So it's eating what mom is eating, berries, insects, things like that. There's no in-between. Human infants are not able to immediately do that after weaning. So they're weaned early by comparison, but they can't immediately support themselves. They're not out there following mom around eating insects and blueberries. Right, getting their own food. And a lot of that is when you look at the way that humans developed, the resources that humans seek out, they're big resources. So, for example, eating things like tubers, potatoes, like you have to have some strength to get those things up out of the ground versus eating only nuts and seeds and berries and, you know, kind of what chimps do. So, you know, even if, even at like a toddler level, they're not going to be able to go dig up a potato. So infants and human babies require a lot of support after they're weaned to basically meet their calorie and energy needs and keep growing. The other thing that you'll notice that people have made note of, anthropologists and psychologists, is how human babies are very expressive with their faces and their sounds. And there's a lot of nonverbal communication that starts happening at a very young age compared to other animals. And they think that this is done to bond with not only their parents, but other adults in the family. So this increases bonding. And of course it does. Because they need help. Like they need you to like them because they need you to survive. So there's this increased bonding with humans that you don't necessarily see with other primates. And then from a biological standpoint, human females are still fertile while breastfeeding. So you don't see that same cessation of menstrual cycle and of fertility while breastfeeding or while nursing that you do in other animals. So that's unique to humans. I learned that. When one of my friends had two babies very close together. Yeah. Because she didn't know that. Yeah. She she figured it out. Yep. Every other animal, if they're nursing, they can't get pregnant. Not going to happen. So one thing that Kristen Hawks and her research team noticed, and she did research in the Hadza, the northern Tanzania, and then also some communities in South America where they're still following hunter-gatherer lifestyle, so living a very primitive lifestyle. And this is also done with some modeling. It was observed that there's a positive correlation between how well children grew, so body weight, how many calories they're getting per day, and how much foraging their mom does. So that supports that theory, right, that kids are entirely dependent on other adults for their intake, specifically their moms, and specifically foraging, because that's where most of their calories are going to come from. That's exactly why we're not having kids. I just, like, I don't have time to be digging up potatoes all day. No. No. I don't. That's too much. It's way too much. Your back would blow up. Can you imagine? You're just, like, you can't even stand. No. Can you imagine digging Foraging all day. Yeah. So that's a positive correlation between how well the kids are doing and how much foraging their mom is doing. And you see that correlation until... Drum roll, please. Mom has another baby. And then what happens? There's like a secondary thing that happens. 
then the infant, the child's growth and development becomes correlated with the grandmother's foraging. Granny's out there. When there isn't Digging a, up potatoes. When there isn't a grandmother, you see less development, you see less growth, you see undernourishment start to happen. That's interesting data, and it's really strong data. And so this is kind of where Kristen Hawks, and she's not the first one to make this correlation, although I think that she's the one who really popularized this hypothesis. She derived the grandmother hypothesis. And the grandmother hypothesis states that grandmothers step in to feed and take care of young children and perform other motherly duties so that the mother can focus her energy on her resources that allow her to have more children at shorter intervals. So essentially the grandmothers who empowers the daughter, daughters, because usually this is happening for multiple offspring, to have more kids. So the result from an evolutionary standpoint, obvious, grandmother enables the birth of more descendants, leaving more copies of her genes in subsequent generations. So if grandmother is a long-living, healthy woman who is going through menopause, by the way, she passes that on because that is what is propagating the species. That is what is enabling more babies to be had. It's not men. It's not women. It's not health of the mom. It's the grandmother. Her ability to literally help out and to be a part of like the subsidizing childcare. So the genes that she would pass on would be slower aging genes relative to other humans and obviously to our predecessors. So basically slowing down aging, living for more years after she's able to reproduce because that's going to have a positive impact on her lineage and then lifespan of human beings in general over time. So when we're talking about like our longevity as a species compared to other primates, because we do live longer, both men and women live longer, grandmothers appear to be a driving force behind that increased longevity across both sexes. So, I mean, in chimpanzees, even the more elder females, they're still reproducing. They're having babies. They can't help with their daughter's babies because they're having their own. Wouldn't it be nuts if grannies could have babies, like human grannies? Yes. That would really throw things off. Well, I think, yeah, for, I mean, talk about a butterfly effect. Yeah. I think we'd be where we are. But, I mean, in isolation, that would be weird. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so when we look at, like, what contributes to the survival of families, it's the foraging, it's caretaking, it's dividing that labor up among women, and that specifically goes towards the survival of not only the women, but also the offspring and the men. So literally, going to pause just there and highlight something. The women are having the babies, and they are doing the most important work from a procuring daily energy standpoint, like getting calories to eat. I do want to stop for a second and bring up something that we mentioned on many podcasts ago, which is that there are theories about the gay aunts or uncles. Hmm. And I'm sorry, but I don't think that that theory holds true anymore because they're too busy going out skiing and biking, partying and partying and yeah. working I want no on their part businesses. Of this. Yeah. 
But also, I mean, it's a good time to pause and kind of like go backwards and remember that line about like fertility and reproduction not being the same. Well, this is an example of reproduction being supported by older women who are not directly related to the, like, the chain of fertility. That's what I meant earlier about decoupling fertility and reproduction, because clearly like there's a lot that goes into reproduction and supporting reproduction that is outside of an individual's fertility or lack of fertility. So we're talking about social ecology, which is essentially how different groups and societies, tribes, individuals exist and work and live in their individual sort of societies. And as a part of Kristen Hawk's work, but also there are other anthropologists and demographers who are doing this, they're looking at the value of different resources in these hunter-gatherer groups, which we all came from hunter-gatherer groups. So there are a few that still exist, and then we can they can make models, but the few that exist. So there's this concept of Specifically with men's work, this like this line, bringing home the bacon. And that comes from this idea that a man's hunting of animals is what contributes significantly to the calorie intake and survival of his family. And you see this all the time with, you know, even with modern day kind of big game hunters, people who do sport hunting, it's always like, you know, I'm glad I get to feed my family and I get to bring home, you know, this elk. And it's, it's always, I'm talking about rich froning. I'm just going to put it out there if you know who he is. He's really into hunting, and that's always the line, right? From an evolutionary standpoint, killing animals didn't really contribute significantly to the survival of the family. In fact, it really didn't matter at all. Because when men killed a large animal, it didn't go to the family. It went to the village. Men didn't kill to support their families. They killed to support and increase their social status. That's what that did. And so when a man would successfully kill a water buffalo or some big game, they would bring it back to the, to the village, to the group, and it would, you know, get distributed. And he would be everybody's best friend because he's brought home animal. Do that enough, and all of a sudden you're the most important person in, in the village. So it works to elevate social status. But hunters are only successful 3% of days they go out. So from a math standpoint, that can't be what supports calorie intake of the family unit. It just doesn't add up. Women are successful at getting food 100% of the time. Foraging, gathering, that kind of thing, 100%. You can go out and get food any day, theoretically. So the survival of the family unit depended on the women and the grandmothers, and the social status of the family depended on the man. So that's old times. Mm -hmm. So... Now that we can go to the grocery store and stuff, how does this play out in modern society? Well, that's kind of the crux of it. I think there's two arguments or two points, and that is I don't think that the way that women mother and have kids and parent is at all reflective of the way that we've kind of evolved to do it, which is in a highly supportive environment. So I think that there's an enormous amount of pressure on women to, yes, have babies. That pressure exists. It has always existed. And now they have the added pressure of be independently successful, have a career, you know, do all of these things, but still be the mother, still support your kid, still have the bond. And, you know, in a lot of situations, they don't have support from the grandparents. Maybe they live away from them. And that's not to say that grandparents don't want to be supportive. It's just like the way that it happens sometimes is they don't. 
but that doesn't change the pressure and the obligations that they have on them every day. And then on top of that, women are treated poorly in our society by comparison to men. They live with a different set of standards. They play by a different set of rules. And so you, you kind of have to wonder, like, what does that do to the collective health of the family unit and the mental health of the mom? But wouldn't you argue that the men play a bigger role in supporting the family, like in the family, like childcare, than even in the recent history? Mm -hmm. You know, there's paternity leave. There's men who choose to forego, like, working and staying home with the kids. There's, like, more men changing diapers based on mm -hmm. my, like, anecdotal evidence, not like my personal evidence, because I don't have a kid or a husband, but I hear this. Yeah. And I see it. Mm -hmm. Like I hear about like, you know, what my grandpa was like, or like, you know, other people's parents and the roles that were expected of them. And I work with dads who are just as involved as the mom. So yeah. there's also that. I definitely think that that happens. Like there's variability and there's variance on like an individual level. And there is like a change. It's still not reflective of the way that we've evolved to care for kids. Like, I think that the presence of the grandmother not only is assistance, but also there's knowledge sharing. There's, you know, the passing down of, of wisdom. and This is how you do things and providing a level of comfort and connection that probably isn't available elsewhere, even in a very supportive relationship with a man who's involved. So it's not necessarily that that isn't good and it isn't helpful and it isn't maybe better even in some ways, but it's not the same. And on top of that, a lot of women are having kids a little later in life. And so you kind of have this kid and then you have the pressure and the fear of this aging, this menopause thing looming. So I don't know. It's I think that's a complex question. I think there's a way that like parenting is happening and I'm not the right person to talk about that anyways. Well, there's also like school and daycare mm -hmm. and things that frankly, like they didn't have back in the day, but they also don't have in some like, I mean, I think about my cousin yeah. who lives on a ranch and they like don't live near a daycare. Yeah. And so yeah. they're left to take care of this baby day in and day out until it's old enough to get to a, like a, an actual school. Yeah. Because like daycare or kindergarten aren't like really an option for them. It's yeah. not worth it. So like there's also that like. You know, there's pressure on certain parents in certain societies to like look a certain way and have a career. And but they also can put their kid in daycare, which wasn't yeah. a thing, which is also a form, I think, of like a community support system. Mm -hmm. Public school yeah. is a thing. But still, like a lot of places, we live in communities that are much larger than the communities that we're really evolved to live in. So, again, it's not to say there's not benefits. And I think that from a societal standpoint, there is not the same level of respect for aging women as there is for aging men. I guess if everyone knew this, like if everyone knew that, you know, grandmothers and aging women quite possibly are the biggest reason or one of the biggest reasons why we're here, would that change things? And there are plenty of societies that do hold older women in very high regard and they exist in with a lot of respect given to them. But you know, in Western society, not so much, I yeah. don't think. And so I think, it's like, for me personally, it's hard for me to accept this because of the family I grew up in. Like, my grandma was very, like, well-respected. 
by me and my family and she was the glue. And I know you've spoken the same about your grandma. Like I see the value that my grandma has, and, mm-hmm. but maybe, okay. Let me but in general you. society, it's different. Yeah. But like in a family unit, like the grandkid probably values the grandmother more if they are that like classic grandmother, like feeding and caring and foraging and providing. Yeah. Did your grandmother live with societal pressure on her in a way that impacted the way that she moved to the world? Probably. Likely. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's different ways of looking at it. Yeah. I think on a micro level, if you're in a really great family with really great grandparents, 100%. My grandmothers were vital for my childhood. Yeah. But I don't think everyone has that. And then there's the added, like, are they given the respect that they deserve? In society. In society. And I think the answer to that is no. Mm -hmm. And now in a, a lot of ways, there's been some articles that come out and it talks about like, you know, there are more kids in the care of their grandparents than there ever have been and this and this. And it's kind of seen as a failure when it's like, really, is it a failure? And, you know, is it a failure as a parent to need help? I think that that gets twisted around sometimes. And I don't think that it's a failure to need help. I think that it's completely normal to need help. What's not normal is to not have help. But women do it all the time and they crush it. And then occasionally you'll see in certain societies there when, you know, the population declines or even the growth slows, they incentivize birth, having more kids, tax breaks, things like that, which, you know, kind of borders on like empire behavior. So I'm going to have, I'm going to do a sidebar because I think this is really interesting. And the sidebar is a brief, very short, not at all in totality history of patriarchal societies. And what I think is most ironic here is when you boil this down, the development of patriarchal societies rests on the ability of women and therefore like grandmothers to contribute to higher birth rates. And so I think that patriarchy has become a bad word. It's like, as soon as you say it, it ticks people off, but it's really (coughs) just, yeah, it's not, it's just the name. It's like, Basically, it's the name of a system. It's like using the word democracy, patriarchy. Not that different. If we're talking about behavior. It definitely has a negative connotation. Yeah. I mean, misogyny. I get that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a behavior. That's a way of acting. Patriarchy is just a thing. It's just a societal structure. And we live in it. So I was listening to this really interesting podcast, and there's a book called The Patriarchs, and it kind of outlines... Again, it's an anthropologist who wrote it and outlines like the history of patriarchal societies, but they aren't like guaranteed. Like it's not something that is consistent. It manifests in different forums, changes over times, even in like different patriarchal societies, it can look different. A lot of people, I think, assume that it's a size and strength difference, and that's why men are in power and women are not, but that's not it. And for many, many years, there's been women in matrilineal societies, you know, indigenous societies, cultures societies in in Western China that have often exercised and still do considerable freedom and equality around sex, labor, child rearing, property ownership. And so like those things still exist. The emergence of states and empires in Mesopotamia like thousands and thousands of years ago was kind of when patriarchal society started. And that's because Up until that point, people could just come and go. Like it was hunter-gatherers. And then the states started to form. 
And in order for states and empires to exist, they need people. They need loyal people and they need people to have babies because that's where their power comes from. So there's pressure on women to have as many babies as they possibly can. And then there's pressure on men to defend and possibly even die for the states. That's kind of like the sprouts of patriarchy in our world. World, not society, world. So, yeah, the interesting thing then is if the pressure is on women to have children, then the pressure is also on grandparents to support women in the division of labor and having children, because that's not, we're not to the agricultural revolution yet. Like this is pre-agricultural revolution. We're not doing mass farming. There's a lot of hunting and gathering still going on. So the foraging, the getting food, like a lot of that is still the same. It's labor intensive, especially looking at different sort of classes of people that are starting to pop up and exist. So ironic then that it's the women who contributed, who were kind of the backbone in, in the literal labor of building patriarchal societies. And I don't, it's not like a lot of people will make jokes about how women should be in power and, you know, they're calmer, they're more gentle, all of this. But that is in its, of itself patriarchal. That's ignoring the fact that women can also be really like brutal and they can be violent. And it's also ignoring that men can be nurturing and gentle. So it's like patriarchy is putting people in very specific boxes so that you can create some sense of ownership over not only the people, but also who they can be. Yeah. The whales, the killer whales. This is in a way. Just killer whales? There's killer whales and then there's like a maybe a pilot whale, which is obviously a more obscure whale because I don't even know what that looks like. And I think that's the right one. I may have to double check that, but that's what's in my brain. The data is really similar. So in families and in pods, that's what you call a group of whales, is a pod. And also this cast. This is also a pod. We're cast. talking about it's now. also a podcast. We're talking about a pod on a pod. Whoa. Cast. Right. You were supposed to do the cast. Sorry, I missed it. That's okay. I gave you a like an eye. I was telling <laughs> okay. you. I was like, fill it I in. thought you were like eyeing to me like, act surprised. Okay, let's do it again. Okay. We're talking about a pod. On a pod. Cast. Yep. Nailed it. Got it. The data is really similar and definitely supports the human data. And that's family units, pods that have older female, post-reproductive females in the unit have more surviving offspring. And those offspring have less scarring on them if they do make it to adulthood. And the older females have more. So they're like literally like going to war for these kids. These little baby whales. What do you call a baby whale? A pup? Is it a pup? Um, I'll look it up quickly. So it's obviously like getting a food is a little different. Whales don't have the same post. It's a calf. A calf. Okay. That was not even close. What about a dolphin? What a baby dolphin? Males are sometimes referred to as bulls. Yeah, I've heard that. wonder about dolphins. Dolphin. Also a calf. All right. Well... Maybe it's seal that's a pup. Can you look this up? Okay, I'm going to, what baby animals are called pup? Dog. Obviously. Horse, bat. Okay. Fox. Yep. Mouse. Pig. I need something in the water Rat. Here. Seal. Yeah, and shark. There it is. And stingray. Okay. Pup, seal, shark, stingray. Not a whale, so we won't talk about their reproductive cycle. But yeah, I guess whale calves are 
obviously a little more independent and capable after weaning than humans are, but obviously still benefit from support from their grannies, from their grams, from their nanas. I wonder what they call their grandmothers. Babas? They called mine Baba. Nanas. And Nan. Nan. Nan and Baba. Yeah. Nan, Bampa, Baba, and Gigi. Yep. Mima, Papa. Those are the great grandparents for me. Nana, Grandma. My so, great grandma was called Baba Hainya. What is the Hainya? I don't know. It was just as a kid, my mom's like, that's Baba Hainya. And it's like, I'm now how old? And I'm like, that's her name. Yeah. How do you even spell Hainya? I wouldn't even know <laughs> where to begin with a Google search on that. I mean, I'm trying. Babusha, Babushka. I don't know. I, I don't, don't know. know. What am I? I'll have to ask my mom or my grandpa. Don't know. Gigi is a cool great grandmother nickname, except that's what I named my grandpa. Okay, question for the listeners. How do you spell Baba Hainya? <laughs> Someone come back with that, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading now that Gigi is a grandmother name. I love that okay. for Walter. Since most Ukrainians speak Russian, it's Babushka, Grandma, and Dadushka, Grandpa, except that's Russian. Or at least that's not what I use. Hmm. I guess we'll just have to answer that question on the next podcast. So anyways, that was kind of it. And this is to say, and I know that this doesn't necessarily change women's experience. It doesn't change the way that women are treated in our society. It doesn't change that feeling of progressive invisibility. But if nothing else, I think as aging and older women, I hope that you're making great soup. My grandma always did. Sorry, were you going somewhere else with that? As long as it's borscht, staying with the Ukrainian theme. No, but I think that like stepping into that knowledge and that reality and sort of feeling and understanding your purpose, evolutionary purpose, and how much value that like older post-reproductive women are to our society and have been for literally the bulk of our existence here on Earth up until very recent history. I hope that makes you feel better. Cheers to the grannies out there. Not even, we need to resist the urge to be labeling postmenopausal women grannies. I'm talking about actual grannies. Oh, okay. Grandmothers. Grandmas. All right. Grandmothers. Granny, I just, that conjures up an image of a very sort of like <laughs> snow white old lady. Like, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Okay. So grandmother. Grams. Yeah. Babas. Word up. Still sucks to be in our society sometimes, but I do think that there's more talk, there's more sharing, there's more caring, there's more research being done. And there's one more thing that actually supports your theory. Okay. And not your theory, the theory that we talked about today. And that is my mom calls Ivy and Mel her grandkitties and yeah. Rue her grand doggy, which has allowed us to think about getting more grand doggies and grand kitties. Right. That's why we got Mel. Right. Because we knew that they could take care of Ivy and Rue. They Shared help us. Division of labor. Sometimes they bring special food from the city. City food. The shrimp that Ivy likes. So really that's foraging in its modern way. Yeah. And there's support there and they take care and let's go with that. Yeah. I like it. 
I will make sure that the references for this podcast are included in the podcast notes, the work from Kristen Hawks, and then link to the patriarchs so you can read and, yeah, get your mind blown like I did. Super fun. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we would appreciate it so greatly if you shared it. Subscribe, like it, leave us a review, give us a thumbs up. If you see us in person, give us a high five and say, good job. Seemed like a lot of work, which it's fun work, so we don't mind. Thank you. We appreciate you and we'll catch you on the next one.